This week, Pacific Drilling files Chapter 11. Opco and note holders prevail in 2016 Ultra Petroleum Makehold Dispute. Hertz receives dip approval. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. Later, legal analyst Sean Daly discusses the latest in energy companies' fights to reject midstream contracts in bankruptcy. It's Sunday, November 1st. Pacific Drilling filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas on Friday with a restructuring support agreement with the largest holders of their outstanding bond debt, pursuant to which the company will eliminate approximately $1.1 billion in principal amount of outstanding bond debt. The restructuring will occur through a debt-to-equity swap. The company also announced um, on Friday that it has repaid its $50 million first lead super priority revolving credit agreement with Angela Gordon, Energy Servicer LLC, as administrative agent and the lender's party there, too. The company expects to emerge by year-end with access to new capital in the form of an $80 million exit facility and with approximately $100 million of cash and cash equivalents on the balance sheet. The RSA parties hold more than 72% of outstanding pre-petition first lien notes and more than 73% of outstanding pre-petition second lien pick notes. The RSA contemplates equitization of all amounts outstanding under the debtor's pre-petition first lien notes and pre-petition second lien pick notes in the financing of the debtor's ongoing business. CFO James Harris states that such equitization would leave first lien notes claims impaired and holders of second lien notes claims, quote, substantially impaired. Accordingly, there is insufficient value to provide any recovery on secured creditors and equity holders. The declaration notes that as part of the plan under the RSA, the company will commence a parallel Cayman Islands insolvency proceeding. In a victory for the OPCO note holders in Ultra Petroleum's 2016 Chapter 11 cases, Judge Marvin Isger ruled that the make-hold premium asserted by the note holders is not unmatured interest and is allowed under the Bankruptcy Code, meaning that the make-hold amounts must be paid in full under Ultra's prior plan, which treated Class 4 OPCO debt holders as unimpaired. The court also found that the solvent debtor exception entitles the OPCO creditors to post-petition interest and that the proper rate of post-petition interest is the contractual default rate. On the final point, awarding only the federal judgment rate would amount to a windfall for the debtor and, quote, would treat an unimpaired class worse than an impaired class of unsecured creditors, according to the opinion. Although the Fifth Circuit expressed doubt in its January 2019 opinion that the APCO debt creditors are entitled to payment of the make whole, Judge Isger concludes in his opinion that they are. The court's opinion comes after the Fifth Circuit vacated and remanded Judge Isger's earlier order directing the debtors to pay the APCO note holders $201 million in aggregate make whole amounts and $186 million in post-petition interest at the contractual default rate under the Master Note Purchase Agreement and Revolving Credit Facility. The court concluded that the make whole amount is allowed under the bankruptcy code and payable because it is both enforceable under New York law and not interest, much less unmatured interest or the economic equivalent of unmatured interest, which would be disallowed by bankruptcy code section 502b2. Judge Esgar also found that the solvent debtor exception applies under the circumstances and the bankruptcy code requires the unimpaired, unsecured creditors of a solvent debtor be paid post-petition interest at the applicable contractual rate. The Fifth Circuit's January 2019 opinion had asserted that the applicable creditors can recover the make amount, quote, if, but only if, the solvent debtor exception survives Congress's enactment of 502b2, and further commented, we doubt it, but ultimately remanded to allow the bankruptcy court to answer the question in the first instance. 
On Thursday, Judge Mary Walrath approved the Hertz debtors' proposed $1.65 billion dip facility on an uncontested basis after the debtors were able to resolve the outstanding objections of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors and an ad hoc group of unsecured note holders. At the hearing, Tom Loria of White and Case, counsel to the debtors, told the court that the debtors need to start placing orders for U.S. rental fleet vehicles in 2021, which will require the use of dip funds and a new ABS financing, not unlike the new downland securitization program, just 10 times larger. Loria said the debtors anticipate obtaining a commitment for such new ABS financing, contemplated by the dip motion in the come in the next couple of days, after which the debtors would seek court approval to enter into the relevant transaction-related documentation. Loria said the dip provides the debtors sufficient liquidity to comfortably operate through the end of 2021, which is hopefully much longer than we will need, to exit Chapter 11, he said. Later, Loria reiterated that the debtors hope to exit far in advance of the end of 2021. Regarding the debtors' existing ABS programs, Darren Klein of Davis Polk counseled the HVF2, ABS program VFN, VFN agent Deutsche Bank, said that the ABS lenders, quote, do not, do, don't know what's going to happen at the end of this year. A reference to the year-end expiration of their interim resolution of claims and master lease litigation issues with the debtors. His comment came during a discussion about a proposed change to the DIP credit agreement language to ensure the super priority casualty claims granted to ABS lenders in the interim resolution would retain their priority if the settlement is extended beyond the current year-end expiration. The parties haven't figured out whether a more global resolution or a continuation of the interim resolution will be the path forward, Klein explained. Top red stories this week include Judge Jones approves Chesapeake debtors' rejection of gas purchase agreement with ETC Texas Pipeline. Oak Tree and Diameter Ad Hoc Group discloses $462.7 million holdings of Malincrot debt across capital structure. First Energy terminates CEO Chuck Jones, finds violations of First Energy policies and code of conduct and internal review related to government investigations. Next, here's Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead. Well, hello, folks. Thanks for being here. And there's one word for what's coming this week. Earnings. Lots of earnings. Monday, November 2nd, we have Superior Industries, Teneco, ACE, AMC Entertainment, excuse me, and Centennial Resource Development, among others. On the court side, there's a TSA rejection bench ruling and extraction and a sale hearing in JCPenney. Tuesday, November 3rd, none really jumps out from the court side, but please take a look at our Ford Weekly released early Monday morning for more details. On the earnings front, there's Bausch, Callum Petroleum, Transocean, and Neighbors. Wednesday, November 4th, this is a busy day. There's hearings in Exide, Foresight, Malincrote, and Norton. While earnings, we have Weatherford, Vistra, Scientific Games, Comstock, Sinclair, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, which we more or less collide with on Thursday, November 5th, when we have Cinemark, Cumulus, Clearway, C, uh, Console, and Simerex, among others. That's just the C's. And then Friday, November 6th, hearings in Taylor Brands, Chesapeake and Diamond Offshore, along with earnings from Washington Prime, Northern Oil and Gas, and Amniol. That's all from me. Mark, back to you. And now, here's Sean to discuss EMP midstream rejections. This segment is hopefully for more than just the legal eagles out there, but rather anyone who has questions on how to think about midstream contract rejection in oil and gas e bankruptcies. There have been a ton of interesting developments recently. As a preview, we'll get to FERC jurisdiction and whether covenant running with the land is an absolute bar to rejection. But first, a quick refresher. Three points for analyzing these situations. First, there's the analytical problem that these disputes are both highly fact and law-specific. 
On the fact side, you're looking at the specific language of contracts, other evidence of intent, and the party's dealings potentially working their way in. On the legal side, you have at least three big issues that can come up. Uh, bankruptcy law questions on a debtor's business judgment to make a rejection decision, and then whether FERC uh, has a has a say in rejection, which, again, we'll get to in a bit more detail later. Uh, and then whether there's a covenant running with the land, in short, whether an agreement gives you a real property right in land or mineral interests as opposed to simply contractual rights to payment, which are treated differently under the law. That's a state law issue. Uh, you could spend an entire afternoon arguing the finer points of Texas state real property law uh, or just generally think about the law in the state where the uh, particular assets are. I think about the case law as being a quilt-like patchwork of decisions. You have to take the, the hyper-specifics of the case, which particular legal issues have been raised, then try to fit it in somewhere amongst precedent. You can look for specific similarities and differences with precedent cases, but I think it's misleading to only look at outcomes and difficult to just spout off on the odds of binary outcomes. Uh, second point, the, the common arguments, a debtor MP will argue uh, we can just reject this contract uh, under the very deferential business judgment rule, which is easy. Uh, you just look at whether it's a, a burden to the estate. Uh, the debtors will argue it's not a covenant running with the land that might otherwise prevent rejection. And a new variation, uh, debtors are now arguing, oh, we can reject even if there is a covenant running with the land. More about which later. And, of course, the debtors will also say we can reject only with bankruptcy court approval. We don't need FERC's approval as well. Historically, the levers for midstream counterparties to argue against the debtors' uh, sort of basic, easy ability to reject have been this agreement constitutes a covenant running with the land, which is not subject to rejection, or if you have a FERC-regulated contract, you can try to argue that the debtors also need FERC approval to reject. Third, just the general principle that bankruptcy funnels disputes towards settlement. Uh, we talk about the litigated disputes, but there are also many that are driven by or that result in, in commercial outcomes. For example, in ultra-petroleum's bankruptcy earlier this year, the debtors just wound up buying a gathering system they'd filed a motion to reject. Uh, debtors also threatened rejection in, in their 2016 bankruptcy, but those issues were just settled out. In Alta Mesa, there was a covenant running with the land dispute. Court ruled that there was, uh, so that the the upstream EMP could not reject certain agreements with a, a midstream affiliate. So the midstream affiliate just filed for Chapter 11. The two ran a joint sale process. Uh, footnote for the junior people out there, Ultimace is a great case study overall. It's messy. There's a, quote, better bid that isn't higher that wins at auction. The deal gets retraded post-COVID. Take an afternoon, grab a drink, and get friendly with that docket. Okay, on to the latest and greatest. First up, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. To restate the issue... For a debtor to reject under the bankruptcy code, a contract which is also regulated by FERC, does the debtor only need bankruptcy court approval or does it also need FERC approval? 
In the extraction cases earlier this month, Delaware bankruptcy judge Christopher Sanchi held that the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction over rejection. And the court specifically noted that even though the parties referred to the term, quote, concurrent jurisdiction throughout uh, their their trial, uh, that's not correct. And I'll, I'll let the court take it away. Quote, this court, meaning the bankruptcy court, and FERC do not exercise concurrent jurisdiction. Rather, they exercise parallel exclusive jurisdiction. Uh, the court goes on to say it would be a violation of the bankruptcy court's exclusive jurisdiction over the rejection of executory contracts for FERC to purport to decide the issues, uh, just as it would be a violation of FERC's exclusive jurisdiction for the bankruptcy court to consider or to decide um, whether there there has been an abrogation or modification of the, the filed rate in the agreement at issue uh, that's um, governed by uh, essentially the, the regulation that, that FERC is, is uh, tasked with enforcing. Quote, there are two separate issues for two separate decision makers, each of which is exercising its exclusive jurisdiction. In the ultra petroleum cases, Southern District of Texas bankruptcy case, um, this is, I think, at the end of August, bankruptcy judge Marvin Isger okayed the debtor's rejection, similarly, of a contract that had a uh, FERC-filed rate component, holding that the bankruptcy court gets to decide rejection, uh, while sort of saying that it, it was a slightly different approach, but he, the court just said that the FERC's interests uh, were not impacted by rejection. Uh, court analyzed uh, two two points. First one, the standard for rejection of this type of contract. The court said higher than just business judgment, you need to consider public policy. But important to note that when the court said public policy, Judge Isgard really just meant um, specific questions that had been briefed and presented to the court. Um, whether rejection of an executory for a contract is overall good or bad public policy is something the judge Isker said, listen, that must be decided by Congress. That's not for the court or for FERC to say. Uh, and then more importantly, and this, this will come back around in a minute, kind of gets to a higher level point. Uh, in, in his opinion, Judge Isker noted that Section 365 of the Bankruptcy Code, which permits rejection of executory contracts, does so with sort of the general blanket, you know, hey, you can, as long as it's an executory contract, you can reject it, general rule, subject to some specific express exceptions. And he said, listen, I don't, I don't have the power to just graft on an exception um, to the, the general rule that would prevent rejection of FERC-approved contracts. Um, and getting to the point that even even rejection is just treated as a breach, a pre-petition breach of an agreement, that gives rise to a, a damages claim um, that is separate from thinking about, say, a, a termination of the contract. So in the to kind of quote from the opinion, Judge Isger said that the bankruptcy code in the Supreme Court make it clear that by authorizing rejection, the bankruptcy court is neither modifying nor abrogating the underlying agreement. Uh, 
Rejection only relieves the estate of the burdens of the agreement and allows the counterparty to recover a bankruptcy claim based on the full amount of its damages. Uh, FERC's jurisdiction concerning rate setting is unaltered by rejection. And the court also, there was, there was an argument that um, rejection of this agreement would also violate one of the requirements for confirmation. And the court said, no, that's not the case, because rejection doesn't modify the filed rate. Uh, it does not implicate uh, Section 1129A6 of the code, which requires regulatory approval before a court may confirm a Chapter 11 plan that includes a, a quote, rate change. Uh, there was a similar stance without getting into the, the procedural setup. Uh, fellow Southern District of Texas bankruptcy judge David Jones in the Chesapeake cases, whole bunch of midstream stuff going on there. We'll get back to it in a second. Uh, but but has said as much that he would more or less uh, take Isker's approach. And for those of you thinking, huh, I've seen this one before, you may be thinking of First Energy Solutions or PG&E. In PG&E, there's a similar argument. Bankruptcy judge Dennis Montali uh, held that only bankruptcy court approval is needed in this, uh, in this fact pattern. Later on, the Ninth Circuit vacated the, the bankruptcy court's order and dismissed FERC's appeal and vacated several FERC orders without weighing in on the merits of the argument because the debtor's Chapter 11 plan called for assumption of all the contracts at issue, uh, in this case, power purchase agreements. So there was, there was nothing left to be rejected. Ninth Circuit said, whatever, we'll just crumple it up and, and throw it all out. In First Energy Solutions, a Northern District of Ohio bankruptcy case, bankruptcy judge Alan Koschick held that the bankruptcy court had exclusive jurisdiction and wound up, uh, I believe, entering an order that had some in, injunctive effect upon FERC uh, from, from taking actions X, X, Y, and Z on its own time. Uh, that went up to the Sixth Circuit, which concluded that FERC and the bankruptcy court actually had, quote, concurrent jurisdiction with the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction, quote, primary or superior to FERC's position, uh, also ruled, amongst other things, that the bankruptcy court's injunction of, of FERC, again, taking certain actions, uh, was overly broad. So it's what's interesting here is it's kind of, if you read the opinion, it's a... Uh, it's a little bit of a head scratcher on this. Uh, you know, bankruptcy court jurisdiction isn't exclusive; it's concurrent. Oh, but it has a, a primary or superior position. I I think you you could even read this opinion uh, to to sort of make it fit within Sanchi's comments about exclusive but parallel jurisdiction. I think that's kind of actually what the Sixth Circuit was getting at, even though it. Uh, use slightly different languages. This is one of those, is there a gap between the, the text and, and the intent? Um, the Sixth Circuit tried to, quote, harmonize the the issue between the bankruptcy court and FERC. And they may have been thinking of, you know, jurisdiction with a, a capital J is just one issue, um, whereas arguably Is, Isger and Sanchi, you know, they, they kind of parse it a little bit. And it's like, okay, here's, you know, here's one agreement, but if they're two separate legal issues, all right, fine. Bankruptcy court gets its legal issues, FERC gets its. Um, but the the Sixth Circuit and First Energy Solutions it, again, this whole concurrent jurisdiction thing. If you if you actually read the opinion, 
there's there's some language where you, again you could you could sort of read it as you know the Sixth Circuit acknowledges that there are you know they say at one point uh, quote there are separate interests of the bankruptcy court and um, FERC. And at the end of the opinion, just a, a little bit lengthier quote to recap, when a Chapter 11 debtor moves for permission to, uh, you know, re- reject a contract that is, quote, otherwise governed by FERC uh, under relevant authority, quote, the bankruptcy court must consider the public interest, so more than a business judgment rule standard, and, quote, it must invite FERC to participate and provide an opinion in accordance with the ordinary approach under other regulation. So that, you know, you can almost read that like, all right, you know, FERC can show up in bankruptcy court and, and participate, but goes to the, the bankruptcy court to make the rejection determination. Ultimately, I, I mentioned a minute ago that case was at the Sixth Circuit. It did not go up to the Supreme Court. Um, the issues sort of got resolved back down in the in the bankruptcy court. So it's, it's on the books at the Sixth Circuit. The second big issue with some recent interesting decisions is covenants running with the land. Historically, you would take your facts, the specifics of each contract, and line them up against the relevant state and real property law. If there's a, if if you have a covenant running with the land under state law, uh, the debtors can't reject the contract. So the the whole point of arguing covenants running with the land is to to stymie rejection. More recently, uh, some some creative and savvy debtors have started arguing that, hey, the Supreme Court has confirmed that rejection of a contract constitutes a breach of an agreement, which uh, breach entitles the counterparty to a damages claim, but it doesn't constitute just an overall cancellation of the entire agreement, so you can have other surviving rights. People have been pointing to Mission Products Holdings uh, v. Technology, which is a, a trademark case in a, in a rejection context. So in Chesapeake, uh, earlier this week, this, this was interesting and, and big, uh, Judge David Jones approved the debtor's rejection of a gas-gathering processing agreement with energy transfer subsidiary ETC Texas Pipeline Limited and issued an opinion in support of the ruling. The opinion's great for two reasons. One, as just noted, these disputes can be fact-intensive inquiries, parsing contract language. Judge Jones gets pretty granular in analyzing the agreements and the opinion en route to concluding that there's no covenant running with the land. And two, it's in dicta. He says that, you know, the fact that there's no covenant running with the land, that's, that's dispositive. This is an executory contract. Go ahead, reject uh, but second, he gives credence to the, the newer argument uh, made here by the debtors that even if there is a covenant running with the land, you can still reject a contract. On the first point, I'll just note that if you're looking for some guidance on what language facts, uh, language or facts Judge Jones thought cut for or against rejection, and you're seeking to apply that to other contracts, there's some, there's some good juice for it. Actually, one point. The, the court pointed to the fact that the exclusive remedy under the contract was for monetary damages as opposed to equitable remedies, say, such as specific performance uh, on, on this requirement under Texas law that there must be intent of the parties for uh, a con- an agreement to constitute a covenant running with the land. 
even though there was an express, there was a sentence in the contract that says, we intend this to be a covenant running with the land, uh, the court said, no, you know, I think this exclusive monetary damages remedy is, is more indicative of the true intent of the agreement. Uh, the, in the opinion, notable for what it leaves out, doesn't mention any of the factual background that was raised by ETC, specifically that the agreements were updated as a result of concerns about Chesapeake's financial health and so that ETC was affirmatively trying to get stronger rights. Um, just not not even mentioned by the court. Um, this, this point about the exclusive remedy being monetary damages under contract, meaning that there's no covenant running with the land, is also an argument made by the Mesquite Energy, formerly known as Sanchez Energy, debtors in a dispute pending before fellow Southern District of Texas bankruptcy judge Marvin Isger. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Isger hasn't ruled, but it'll be interesting to see. He actually asked for more briefing on this topic after he heard the parties argue. Um, so in- interesting to see whether he cites to, to Jones here when he ultimately rules. On the second point, this, this is pretty wild, uh, the, the argument that the debtors could reject the contract even if there is a covenant running with the land, um, you know, going back to the point that Judge Isger brought up in Ultra in a slightly different context, but just the general rule that you can reject any executory contract, and if there's an exemption, it has to be expressly um, noted by Congress. So the debtors said, you, you know, one of one of their angles here is contracts containing covenants that run with the land are not among those express exemptions. And also made the the nice point without digging into it too much further that bankruptcy courts quote routinely allow the rejection of contracts that contain covenants that run with the land on expired leases, even though a lease uh, quote is both the conveyance of an estate and real property and a contract. And ETC countered in its briefing that nope, covenant running with the land means rejection is not available. Uh, you know, they quote from the Alta Mesa decision by Judge Isger last year, quote, it, second, second line of the opinion, because uh, counterparties rights under the gathering agreements run with the land, the gathering agreements are not subject to rejection under Section 365. Uh, cites to Badlands, Colorado bankruptcy case, interpreting a, a different state's law. Because the agreements are covenants that run with the land, Section 365 is simply not available. Uh, quotes to Sabine on the on the same point, uh, Southern District of New York, and then ultimately up to the Second Circuit in, in Sabine. So, moving to the opinion, with those you know those being the the parties' stances, uh, Judge Jones in the opinion says, "quote Executory contracts and covenants that run with the land are not mutually exclusive." Court says Section 365, quote, contains no such exclusion and, quote, no known rule or law prohibits the mutual existence of both concepts within a single document. Uh, And then the the court goes on to say that at that point, the appropriate analysis would be, quote, what benefit was previously bestowed by the debtor on the non-rejecting party that remains post-rejection and what future performance by the debtor is excused by the rejection, uh, citing to technology on that one. And then the, the opinion also, this is, this is sort of a, 
this is a little bit of a, a head scratcher. Uh, the opinion says that you know e- ETC repeatedly asserts that it it cannot be cannot categorically be an executory contract if it contains a covenant that runs with the land. And Judge Jones says, "quote ETC does not cite, nor is the court able to locate any authority for such a proposition." Which, you know, the language I cited just a minute ago from ETC's reply brief that, huh, certainly sounds like they they threw some language in their briefing on point. Uh, but then in the in the next paragraph, the the court addresses this in a in a little bit more though not super satisfying detail it says etc's reliance on ultimace and badlands it, by name um, for this proposition that gathering agreements containing covenants running with the land cannot be rejected is, is misplaced uh, according to judge jones quote etc misses the import of those decisions which according to Judge Jones, is that, quote, in each case, the debtors sought to remove the entirety of the burden from their real property interests. And then in a footnote, the opinion says that, quote, the court's review of the record in the identified cases does not reflect that any party asserted that the agreement at issue could be rejected, notwithstanding that a real property covenant would continue to burden the subject land post-rejection. So there's, there's a lot. I don't know if it needed to be said. It's just, you know, that footnote saying essentially in in the prior cases cited to by ETC, uh, the, the debtors whole, you know, oh, these concepts aren't mutually exclusive argument wasn't made. So the court didn't weigh in on it. So the prior court didn't weigh in on it. So you can't defend against the new argument based on those prior cases is kind of how I'm reading that, which don't know if I'd particularly agree with. Um, but now this, this dicta, again, the court, the court after, after spending two paragraphs talking about it, the court said, oh, but by the way, the, whole, the covenants running with the land issue here is dispositive, so we don't need to get to this. Um, I, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but it's interesting because this, you know, this is bifurcating. It's it's not sufficient to stop at, oh, there's a covenant running with the land. Uh, the position articulated by the, the debtors and seemingly supported by Jones is an agreement can have both executory uh, contract and covenant running with the land aspects. You can reject whatever is executory, and then you know maybe there's an open question what rights, if, if any, are left to be preserved. In extraction, again, back in Delaware, Judge Sanchi recently held uh, a, a bevy of agreements, did not contain covenants running with the land, looking at Colorado law. And I, I think this this makes sense. Uh, Sanchi said that the central issue is the touching concern requirement, whether the, the agreement's touching concern the land, which really gets to the, the real property nature. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, intent, one element, uh, things get maybe a, a little slippery on on what you do or or don't rely on for intent, um, and then if if you're listening to this right after it's come out, there's a, a bench ruling where Judge Sanchi will rule on rejection of certain of these agreements on Monday, November second, bright and early, nine a.m. Eastern. And I'll I'll end with a shameless plug that if you're a Reorg subscriber, our legal analyst team is at your disposal to discuss these issues further.
Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe.